you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. We are skipping ahead for just a moment. This is further along than we are in Ezra. I think the connection will be obvious to you once we read. All right, but we're at the very end of Ezra chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 19 through 22. Ezra chapter 6. Beginning in verse 19. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, For the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. It's really something that transcends all cultural, racial, economic, social, and even historical boundaries. There is something that all of us do, and we've always done, regardless of where we would place ourselves among the people of this planet and over the entire history of this planet. I don't know if that's emphasizing how much we do this thing, but all of us do this, and humans have always done it, and that is for important moments, we eat. Right? For everything. And, and I know, you know, whatever denomination you're in, I mean, you, that we love to say, well, Baptists love to eat, but the truth is, Presbyterians do too, and so do Methodists, and so do Lutherans, all right? In other words, whatever group we find ourselves in, we find ourselves connecting moments with food. And it's not new to us. This is not a Baptist thing. It's not an American thing. It's not a modern historic thing. This has always been the way all people have done things. That there's just something natural about it. That, that when, when we want to recognize important moments, we include it with food. And really not even just important ones. We, we commemorate unimportant things with food too, right? I mean, we like to have food with whatever we do. Think of it this way. Have any of you ever received or sent out a birthday invitation 
saying, come at five o'clock, we're going to celebrate so-and-so's birthday, and you go and you don't eat anything. Anyone, ever? Has that ever been an invitation? Have you ever invited somebody over and you just sat on the couch and looked at each other? In other words, there wasn't at least a glass of water and, you know, nabs with it, something, right? I mean, there's always food with what we do. And again, it doesn't really matter what it is. When we go somewhere to entertain ourselves, whether it's movies or music or some other form of entertainment venue, what do they always have? Snack bar. Yeah, yeah, snack, popcorn, okay. Yeah, popcorn, snacks of some kind. Just, it's almost whenever we gather, we eat. And it's always been this way. In, fa- in fact, I've kind of laid it out this way. This could almost be a sermon outline unto itself. Whether we are celebrating something, commemorating something, or commiserating over something, three C's, it's alliterated, all right? We eat. And in fact, probably the, the time when you may receive the most food is when, when there's been a death in the family. So it doesn't really, it's not always just a celebration. It's not always just a milestone, birthday, anniversary. Just about any moment that we recognize as having a certain kind of heft and weight and significance, we find we connect it with food. Again, this, I think it's just kind of how we're wired. And so it's no surprise that we find this all throughout the Bible. We find a variety of meals and language about food and connecting food with important moments. It's just not a surprise we find that in the Bible. And there are two meals in particular that rise above all the others. And I would imagine we'd all get this little pop quiz right especially after what we just read. All right, there's a little hint. This is an open book kind of quiz. If I were to ask you, what's the most important meal of the Old Testament? You would reply, Passover. All right. And if I were to say, what's the most important meal of the New Testament? Lord's Supper. And and so it's not a surprise then that these two rise above the rest and that these two then are intimately connected with one another. That what they did when they, though they didn't always know it in the fullness, that part of partaking of the Passover meal, it wasn't, it was to look back and see what God did for them in Egypt, but we also know that meal was a foreshadowing. That as, as they took of the lamb, as, as that lamb was then given in sacrifice, and then they ate of that lamb, as they ate unleavened bread, as they drank from a cup. I mean, they didn't know, but this is foreshadowing what's going to be a greater and better work to come. And then as we now take the elements of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus took the Passover meal and instituted this new meal in the new covenant, what do we do then as we gather And we take of these elements. Well, we're looking back. I mean, really, the Passover meal foreshadows what's to come in Christ crucified. And what do we do? Well, we look back to a completed work of Christ crucified. And so these, these two meals are significant. They're tied to one another. So this morning, we're going to take just a few minutes as we kind of prepare our own hearts and minds 
for, for what is going to be our, our central concern, and that is taking of the bread and drinking of the cup as commanded by our Lord. We're going to take a look, though, at how this group of exiles observe the Passover and how this helps us understand important ways we observe the Lord's Supper. Now, you're gonna ha- we're going to have to do this quick. You're going to have to listen quick. All right, but I have no doubt you can do that. We're, we're, we're going to kind of uh, think uh, in, in fairly broad strokes here, but just, as, just, just to kind of get your, your mind in the right place as we are in Ezra chapter 6, this is not where we are in our normal study of Ezra, all right? We are just at the spot where they've started to rebuild the temple and they've run into trouble. So we're, we're flash-forwarding here to the end of chapter 6. And just so you know, by this point in the story, temple's done. All those hurdles that were put in their way have been jumped over. Darius is all on board and, in fact, provides ample and sufficient resources so that the temple can be completed. So chapter 6 tells us that story. Chapter 6 also tells us about the dedication of this temple. And then we get to the end of it. We find them doing something really important. Really important, really, in the whole scheme of the history of God's people. In a lot of ways, God's people as a nation, begin with the meal of the Passover in terms of the history of the Old Testament people. And here we are near the end of the Old Testament history. Ezra and Nehemiah, this is the end of Old Testament history. When Nehemiah ends, that's it. It doesn't feel that way necessarily when you read it, but but Nehemiah is giving us fundamentally the, the final stories of the Old Testament period And so what do we find in this group of people, these exiles? Well, they're also going to observe the Passover. And so the text opened up by indicating what once once they're done with the building process and the dedication process, now the time in the calendar reaches the appropriate place. It's the 14th day of the first month. So this is the month of Nisan. This would coincide with our March, April. That's why Passover always coincides in some way with Easter. And so that time comes around, and now all of the elements are in place. Everything's completed. So now they can observe this meal in its fullness in a way they've not been able to do for 86 years. And so now we come to a place where they're, where they're able to once again take of this meal and celebrate then the Feast of Unleavened Bread where for seven more days, I mean, do you think you're going to have a Feast of Unleavened Bread and not actually eat food? How do you name it that? And not, so they are, they're going to eat. So they're going to have a Passover meal, which quite frankly is not the tastiest meal you could have if you've ever been through one, all right? But the rest of it, all right? The rest of it would have been pure buffet. Uh, I mean, all kosher, but it would have been pure buffet. They would have enjoyed seven days worth of eating and celebrating and the joy of the Lord. But for Passover, it was a somber, sobering kind of moment. As God draws their attention back to His historic work, and in many ways locates them where they are now. It's an opportunity for them to once again be reestablished as a covenant people in covenant faithfulness. So as we take a look at this, uh, as we take a look at these verses for just the next few minutes and see how they observed 
in particular the Passover, I think we, we can take away from this the fundamental features that are important to this are of the same kind when we gather then to take of the elements. So I just want to highlight three. Three elements here of the, the Passover in, in terms of, of what it does, meaning how they view it, how it should impact heart and mind, and how that connects then to us as a New Testament people of God. So, three acts. First, number one, it is a time to remember. To take the Passover meal, it was a time to remember. Now, now the text itself is not telling us this other than it is saying that in the, verse 18, uh, 19, the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Now, this is the law. In fact, God established this way back in the book of Exodus on the first night He commanded this. He said, this will be a perpetual meal for you, the people of God of the Old Testament. This will be a meal for generations to come. And this is going to serve an important lesson, is, as, is really what the text is getting at in Exodus 12, I believe, where the Passover meal is laid out. God wants to make sure that they never forget where they've come from. He wants them to remember. He wants them to remember that they were slaves in Egypt. He wants them to remember that they, they required God to do something they could not do for themselves. They couldn't be un, unbecome slaves. They couldn't do that. They could not produce their own rescue. They could not have conquered the Egyptian people God had to intervene, and He did so in perhaps the most dramatic way He's ever done in human history. I mean, the, the events that transpired over those months, when, when God gives plague after plague after plague, this was a spectacular display of God's power. God wanted them to remember. Now, you, you may think, oh, I mean, yeah, okay, I get that, but come on. Is that really something you could forget? Well, yeah, because a month later they do, and they build a golden calf. Yes! But before you laugh at them, you're no better. I'm no better. Do you mean to tell me there are not days that have slipped by and actions you've committed and ways you've thought and things that you've done that do not indicate you have forgotten the cross and the gospel? Of course you have. We're prone to forget, right? And so it's no wonder, he says, so do, you're, you're doing this meal, this is a way to remember, it's a way to pass on the information to subsequent generations, and so God wants them to remember. This, this is a time to look back a time to reflect on a very specific work God had done to redeem, to rescue, to bring His people out, to save them. It also was an act of forgiveness, by the way. We'll get to in the next point. So this was important that they would remember. Now, not much more needs to be said about this when we get to the Lord's Supper, right? Because Jesus literally says, do this... In remembrance of me. I mean, it is, it is cut into every Lord's Supper table I've ever seen, right? All across this country 
and maybe others in other languages. I mean, that, that's, that's what we write. In remembrance of me. We take of the bread and we drink of the cup. Because the truth is, it can be easy for us to forget. It can be easy for us to live as if the gospel and the cross in particular is not of central concern to our lives. To take of this meal is to take us straight back to the cross. To take of this meal is to humble us before God, to once again confess to Him, I am what I am and I am where I am because you and your grace did for me what I could not do for myself. It's an important moment. Because sometimes we don't always live that way. And so, so it's good, it's good that we would do this so that we might remember, to, re- to remember that we required Christ to be crucified. His blood had to be shed. There is no other way you and I are saved. There's no other option. If Jesus does not accomplish this work, we are all still dead in our trespasses and sin. So we look back to the cross and we come back to the cross because we can so easily stray from it in our thoughts and our hearts. We remember, remember what has been done for us. Number two, it is also a time to confess. I mean, central to that, already alluded to, is the reality of our sin condition. You can't take of the bread and drink of the cup without thinking about sin. And God's people had to consider the sin element as they took Passover. Now, I want you to notice how this shows up right off the bat. Notice verse 19. Do you see how they're described? And the descendants of the captivity. It's interesting to me. They are not identified as the exiles that had returned. Before taking the Passover, the text identifies them in relation to what? God's judgment. These are descendants of the captivity. These are descendants who had spent their time exiled, or now at this point, many years later, descendants of those who had been exiled. People who had spent 70 years in Babylon and then Persia because of their sin, because of their disobedience to God's covenant. So he identifies them already in relation to this history of sin among them. The descendants of the captivity. But then notice what they have to do in verse 20. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves... All of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Though an important element of the Passover meal was to remember how God rescued them from slavery, it also reminded them of their need for forgiveness. Because what was part and parcel to this whole event? They had to kill a lamb, they had to take the blood of that lamb, and they had to paint it on the doorposts so that the death angel would do what? Pass over. If there was no blood applied, what would have happened? Death. Death. 
By the way, I would argue that that promise would have extended to the Egyptians as well. That had they painted their doors with the blood of a lamb, I think they would have been spared. God was very clear here about this. This is, what, this is part of the problem was their sin. And we know Israel had been infected by Egypt. We know that. We know that when they leave Egypt. <laughs> we can see the things they do. Again, they build a false god, right? So we know this, this had infected them. This was a part of them. And so one element then is also another reminder about their sin. And so they have to go through a time of ritual cleansing. The priest has to be cleansed before he can even offer the sacrifice. And you'll notice how the text is specific. The lambs are slaughtered for the descendants of the captivity. Why is that lamb slaughtered? Is it so they can eat the meal? No. I mean, yes, but no, not really. It's because where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's why. The shedding of the blood of the animal. Do, do not miss this. The offering of the lamb was a sin offering. Every year it was a sin offering. It had to be done every single year. So, so to take of this, of this meal, of the Passover, w- would have been a very clear indication of their sin condition. Obviously, as we take of the meal together today, brings us face to face with the reality of sin. I mean, it's even contained in the, in the words of institution themselves. Body that was broken. Blood that was shed. I mean, this, this language points us to the fact this is a sin offering. The reason we're taking it is because... We are dead in our trespasses and sin, unable to atone for our own lostness. We cannot, in our own power and ability, offer God anything that would then invite His justification and His forgiveness. We have to depend upon the work of another. Of course, this meal represents something better, according to the book of Hebrews, something better than what was offered in Passover. Why is it better? Because now we have a great high priest who needs no sacrifice for his sin. He is also the Lamb of God and a Lamb that needs no purification itself, already pure, spotless, and blameless. So he is the priest, he is the sacrifice, therefore he's able to offer it right, and he himself is right, so the sacrifice is sufficient. Again, all of this points us to the reality of our own sin condition. The only reason we're right with God is because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And as we take of these elements, we should also be reminded then, you know what what I think this does? I think this brings us face to face with the depths of our depravity, which is something we don't always appreciate. We don't always think about how, how sinful our human hearts were. So just, just, let me, just let me tell you, how, how bad is it? How bad is the sin condition of mankind? Well, it's only this bad, that God Himself had to come down, wrap Himself in the fullness of human flesh, so that in His own body, the Son of God, could bear God's wrath against sin. 
You want to know how bad your sin is? Look no further than the cross. We're not talking about shortcomings. We're not talking about weaknesses. We're not talking about failures every now and then. We're not talking about little oopsies that you might commit, all right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about wickedness and depravity to the very core of your being that cannot be solved and saved without Christ. We take of this. This is what we remember. It's a time then for us to confess, acknowledge who we were before Christ, we recognize we are saved because God in His grace has saved us. And at the same time, we are mindful of the ways in which we still live in the flesh. So it's an opportunity, as I prayed for us just moments ago, and you would have opportunity in quiet moments in just a few moments to pray your own prayer of confession before God. There are ways in which sin still rears its ugly head in our lives. And so we confess that. But here's the beauty then of taking the elements together because then this is what it also reminds us of. And this is such good news because when I eat of the bread and when I drink of the cup, I am reminded that there is no leftover sin, there's no residual sin, and there's no future sin that requires Jesus to shed any more blood than he's already shed. I don't need him to do anything else. Jesus doesn't have to come back and say, huh, 2,000 years ago wasn't quite enough. We're going to have to squeeze out some more blood for you. I know what there may be some people thinking, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't care. You know no sin. You know no depths of depravity that is so great that Christ's work on the cross was not sufficient to atone for it. Do not think for one minute that you're such a professional at sinning that it can overcome Christ's atoning work. No, it's sufficient. And as we eat, then, we are reminded of what is this sufficient work of our Savior, that in His death, He accomplished all that needed to be accomplished. Which means, by the way, as we eat of these elements, you know what we are not doing? Let me make this emphatic. Jesus This does not become his flesh. This does not become his blood because Jesus need not be crucified over and over again. Doesn't mean this isn't important. But this is a memorial meal in which we eat of the bread as a reminder of flesh that was broken. We drink of the cup as a reminder of blood that was shed to the point of death. Because Christ's death was once and it need not be repeated. All right, let me give you one more. And that is a time to surrender. It is also a time to surrender, to come to Him in full commitment. Notice what it says in verse 21. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. Now, we'll probably get to that in a little more detail, but just kind of... Uh, to, to wet your whistle a little bit on what this means, this means that over the course of time, as the exiles had returned and reestablished themselves as God's people, rebuilt the temple, are rebuilding the wall, that there are people among the pagan nations that are functionally converting. That's what it's talking about. Those who had separated themselves, that's pretty strong language, but from the filth of the nations around them. In other words, it's saying, so the people of God, those who'd come over to the people of God, 
And they all eat together, and they do so in order to do what? To seek the Lord God of Israel. In other words, in taking of this meal, this is also once again surrendering themselves to covenant fidelity, faithfulness to God's commands and promises. As we take of this meal together, it is also an opportunity for us to surrender ourselves, to once again commit ourselves to being a gospel people, to being a Christ-loving, God-honoring, Spirit-filled people. Because the cross has accomplished that for us. We are able to be that. And so we gather together. By the way, most of us who have been called out from the filth of the nations, because I think all of us here are Gentiles, called out to be among God's people. And so as we take of this meal, that is what we are doing. Remembering, we're confessing, and we're surrendering. And so we are privileged now that we can come together in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we can gather around the Lord's table together. And so I would ask the deacons to come. As they are coming... I would also ask you to prepare your own hearts. Keep in mind the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Again, it is a sobering moment as we partake of this. God intends for us to treat this with the utmost respect and, and that we take it with the utmost seriousness. And so I invite you to gather around the Lord's table as God's people, to fellowship and the body and the blood of Christ, the bread and the cup. I invite those who are believers in Jesus Christ and those who are in fellowship with His church to partake of these elements together. If the words I just spoke do not describe you, I would implore you not to take of these elements. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, do not take of these elements. If you are not in fellowship with His church, do not take of these elements. I would encourage you to think carefully then about taking of bread and cup. If however you are, then do so in all full faith and confidence that this work is a completed work on your behalf and that we can be grateful for what has been God's saving work. I would also add here, if you would say, I, I'm not a believer or pastor, I'm not really sure, at the close of the service, I'll be up front and I would love to tell you more about what it means to believe the gospel, to trust in Christ, crucified and resurrected, to receive forgiveness of sins because of what Christ and Christ alone has done. And that you would have an opportunity then to come to know this Savior and then to be able later to partake of these same elements as one of God's people. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people. We thank you for the privilege of once again being able to take these elements together. We come as a people committed to remembering, confessing, surrendering. 
And may it be an opportunity where we, as your church, and then as individuals, think carefully about what it means to be your people living in this day and unto your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.